Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 21. The one about the Boeing 737 MAX, Red Bull, photo and video editing, and speed. Let's get on with the show. And welcome to another recording of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. We are back for more content, news, tech from the world of marketing. I say we because I am joined by my co-host, man on a mission to keep marketing simple. He is the voice of the Marketing and Finance Podcast and the host of the Roger Vlog video series. I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. Hello, everybody. It's great to be back. And as always, my co-host is a man on a mission to demystify digital marketing. He's the host of the Content Marketing Studio video podcast. I give you Mr. Pascal Fintoni. Well, thank you very much, Roger, for the introduction. And thank you to you, viewers and listeners, for your ongoing support. It is truly appreciated. This is episode 21. As always, we have lots to go through at quite some pace. So let's begin with In the News. A survey from Havas Media Group has found that 45% of UK shoppers care less about Black Friday in 2020 than they did in previous years, in particular those aged between 35 and 44. Well, Apple has agreed to pay $113 million to settle a claim, alleging that the tech company deceived consumers by slowing down older iPhones to help extend battery life. Warner Brothers have announced that they will stick to the December cinema release for Wonder Woman 1984, and the film will also be available online, starting with HBO Max. Where the UK government recently approved the creation of a cybersecurity task force as part of a £16.5 billion package of funding for the UK National Security Services. NordPass... Cybersecurity has published their report on the 200 most used passwords in 2020 with 123456, password ABC123 and I love you in the top 20. Well, the Facebook Messenger experience is finally rolling out to Instagram. It will include Vanish Mode, Chat Themes and Watch Together for IGTV, Reels, Movies and TV Shows to watch with your friends in real time. The launch of the PS5 was delayed in the UK, but it did not stop celebrations with the London Underground signs at Oxford Circus transformed into famous PlayStation icons. And finally, Amazon UK has just completed their Black Friday Live, a two-week event with online workshops and entertainment from the likes of Alicia Dixon and Stephen Mulhern. Wow, lots happening this week, Pascal. Quite, yes. Now, can I ask, I'll start with um, the first news you read out, uh, Roger, mm -hmm. about Black Friday. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, you and I are no longer uh, on the 35 to 44 bracket. <laughs> but how do you feel about Black Friday this year compared to previous years? Do you know, Pascal, maybe I'm an old git, but <laughs> Black, Black Friday has always been one of those things that I've thought it's just suddenly happened. You know, it's a very recent thing. And... It's all. It almost creates hysteria, doesn't it? I, I, I never ever was never ever able to understand why people were very happy to get up at four a.m. on Boxing Day, having endured a three-month build-up to Christmas. They have one day off on Christmas Day, and then they go back out to spend more money on Boxing Day. That always baffled me. But this Black Friday creates almost the same levels of hysteria amongst people, and. Last year, I just thought it was the biggest, you know, cacophony of, of noise that I've ever heard around a, a sale. Uh, so I actually feel a little bit of relief this year that, uh, that the pandemic has maybe just 
softened the effect of Black Friday a bit. No, I would agree. And and it just feels, um, and for me as well, the, the name is a little odd because the uh, it, it sounds very much you know, like that crisis, I think it was 1929 or 1939, you know, when there was a black, the crash of the, the, the market, I think it was a Black Monday or something like this. So I think it's just an odd term, really. Mm. And they've got Cyber mm. Monday, which was essentially invented all those years ago. But of course, logistics has improved quite dramatically since then. So you don't have to anxiously order everything by that Cyber Monday or else. I think uh, the way in which things are working out, and I'm sure they've learned through the pandemic, you could order something on Christmas Eve and get it within next hour. <laughs> yeah, and I guess you get to a certain age as well where, you know, the, these these big days where you're supposed to buy all sorts of presents... If, if you're buying stuff for each other and your family throughout the year, and let's face it, pandemic, because we've all been locked down so much, I, th I suspect people have been buying stuff as and when they need it. And, and the need for a focused day, to me, this year, doesn't seem to be as relevant as maybe it has been in the past. What I thought was fascinating, and you're right, there's a convergence of themes and topics here. It's all about mm -hmm. cybersecurity, data protection. It's almost, it's come in the news, you know, almost weekly for us. And I couldn't help but see the juxtaposition, which was an accident, really, of you reading out this rather amusing report of the 200 most used passwords and the government spending billions of pounds in cybersecurity. Yeah, I mean, let's face it. Um, it's it's obvious that people are going to use one two three four five six as a password. I mean, it's 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 dumb, obviously. But do you know sometimes you get to? Do you ever get that where you log on to a website or you log into an app that you've not logged into for a while and you just cannot remember what the password was, or you think you're typing it in right and it tells you it's not right, and you and you're going, it is right, it is right, it is right, and you end up having to change your password. It just drives you insane. So whilst people shouldn't do one, two, three, four, five, six. I can sometimes understand why they do. Yeah, but you know, I, th I wonder whether we're going to reach the point where you know, I mean, what's been very sad about you know what's happening in the pandemic is increasing in fraud, online fraud. I know that many people are very worried about their elderly parents and people who essentially don't really always understand that what's online is not always honest and and you know the text you get from the bank allegedly and stuff like that. But I wonder if there's going to be a point where people will will be um, essentially deemed to be negligent. And mm -hmm. your mm -hmm. bank, for example, will say to you, I'm sorry, but with a password like um, I love you, which was quite amusing, we're not going to help you out because you were yeah. negligent in protecting yourself. I think you're absolutely right, Pascal. I can definitely see that. In fact, a lot of the times now, the banks ask you to double agree before you pay a bill, don't they? Are you sure that this bill is a legitimate bill? And you click yes, and then it says, "Are you absolutely sure it's a it's a legitimate bill?" And then click. So I, I think they're sort of building up to that that sort of approach, aren't they? Can I ask you very quickly? Are you going to go ahead and get a PS Five? Uh, I'm not actually a PlayStation guy, Pascal. Actually, I've never had one, uh, so I've never had one, two, three, four. Um, <laughs> we, we've always we've always been an Xbox family, a Microsoft family. So I, I'll just have to hope that there are some games on the Xbox that I can play. Um, I did also want to mention about the Facebook Messenger rolling out more features because by the time you listen to this episode of two geeks in a marketing podcast we'll also have been two weeks into the launch of twitter's um new story feature which is called fleets and and again pascal i know we said this a lot on the show but it just seems to me that all these social media platforms are all striving to become exactly the same and 
the things that used to set them apart no longer do because literally they are all offering exactly the same experience with just a slight difference in the, I guess the market they're targeting and and I just seriously wish somebody like Twitter or or um, Instagram would launch something genuinely different rather than exactly the same. Makes you wonder whether eventually all, there would be one thing called Facebook and it'll just be one or the same. So what mm. was was called in a past Messenger, Instagram or WhatsApp just is called Facebook. It's just yeah. it's a very, very, very strange and um, you know, good luck to them. But I think for me, I'm nonplussed by the announcement because I use Instagram very, very differently to that I use Messenger, which is also a very different in terms of how I use Facebook. Um, but uh, thanks very much you know, for your, your comments on that. But we cannot slow down today for this episode. We've got to speed up. We do. So let's move on to the content spotlights. And in this segment, Roger and I surprise each other with a discovery from the interweb, a podcast, an article, a video. So, Roger, what have you got for me this week? Well, Pascal, initially, this might not sound like a marketing topic, uh, but it's something I did want to discuss. And there's hundreds of articles that have appeared in all sorts of um, publications over the last few days about this topic. So the one that I'm going to link to in the show notes is just one of many. Uh, it's more the topic that I want to talk about than the specific article. But this article is probably the nearest to an art, a marketing angle that I could find. This is all about the Boeing 737 MAX. Now, for those of you who know, the Boeing 737 MAX is the latest version of an incredibly successful airliner that Boeing have been producing since 1967 and sadly there were a couple of catastrophic crashes uh, back in 2018 and early in 2019 which meant that uh, all the governments throughout the world grounded the Boeing 737 MAX and this week the FAA in, in America have finally lifted the ban on this aircraft and it can now get back into the air and just to give everybody a little bit of background about what it was that was happening with this because it's a really interesting story but a sad one as well now the the airliner is a, i guess a short haul medium distance airliner single aisle usually three times three in terms of seating and its main competitor in the world is the airbus a320 now, the Airbus A320 is a much more modern design than the Boeing 737 because that dates back to the, you know, the mid-60s. When Airbus launched a new version of the A320 a few years back, they added bigger engines, uh, much more efficient and quieter engines. And that was fine because the Airbus sits quite high up off the floor, off the ground. But the Boeing 737, because it's such an old design, is very low down on the ground and they couldn't add the same massive engines on the plane in the same way as they did on the Airbus. So what Boeing did is they moved the engines higher up onto the wing. Now what they had to do to compensate for this is that these new engines, the position they put them in, made the aeroplane slightly less aerodynamically sound than it used to be when the engines were lower down and they included a bit of software which compensated for that change in aerodynamics and it was that piece of software that malfunctioned and sadly caused these two crashes which killed nearly 400 people and over the last 18 months to nearly two years 
Boeing have been trying to fix that software and introduce all sorts of new safeguards and double checks and triple checks and everything. And of course, now the FAA have given it the go-ahead to go back flying. And the the marketing angle to this Pascal is, would you want to go and fly in this aircraft? And this article, the one that I've chosen to put in the show notes, is from Inc. magazine. And the headline is, President Trump had a big idea for the Boeing 737 MAX, but it got rejected. And what President Trump had said a, a year or so ago is, when you get this thing back into the air, you'll have to change the name of it. Call it the Boeing 7107 or the, the, the Boeing new plane or something like this. Now, Boeing have decided not to. They're sticking with the name 737 MAX. And this article's asking, is that actually the right thing to do? Or should they have rebranded it? Now, personally, Pascal, I'm not I'm not convinced I'll ever fly on a 737 MAX. I mean, it's from what I read, it was aerodynamically flawed. And they're just using computer software to cover that. Now, I'm not a flying expert. I'm not an aerodynamics expert but that's the research that I did. At least I would give it a few years to make sure that it genuinely was safe. But I think the thrust of what this article is saying is that Boeing have decided that if they did rebrand it and call it something else, that would actually draw people's attention to it more. And it would almost be like you're calling it something else to hide the fact that it was this plane that that had crashed. And they've decided to keep the name, which I actually think is a good idea. And what they're going to try to do is to create passenger um, confidence, maybe by doing flights with Boeing executives. Um, Although, again, a a Boeing executive probably would have to have courage to go on that flight to try to build up very slowly the confidence that people might have to get back on this plane. And it might be the case that, you know, airlines will have to say, you know, if we've got a 737 MAX plane scheduled on your route, we won't penalise you if you decide you don't want to fly on that particular aircraft and you'd prefer to wait for a different flight, which is on an Airbus or a different version of the 737. So I thought it was quite interesting. You've got a massive brand, a global brand, that unfortunately had a couple of catastrophic crashes which claimed many, many lives. It's a damaged brand, massively damaged brand. What would you have done? Would you have changed the name or would you have kept it the same? I think, you know, to your point about um, whether people will deem it to be essentially a way to mask um, reality and and masking, obviously, you know, a past that is is just awful, you know, in terms of costing lives. Um, uh, Because it's interesting because many decades ago, and some of our listeners may be too young to remember that, but there was a ferry company who had an accident which cost lives as well. And they did change their names and mm. became something else, and actually became a very successful you know, ferry company. But you have to have been around in, at that time to remember when there was this obviously awful, awful accident. Where mm. essentially, if you remember, you know, the um, someone literally had forgotten to close the back door, and then water started to you know go into the ship. So I think with regard to that decision, I think it's because they are in line with the times. I think that would have been a good technique technique maybe in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, in 2020 onwards, with the internet, with social media, I think they must be better off actually to try and repair, obviously, their, their brand. But, you know, to your point, right now, if you were to search and Google 
um, you know, the, 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 the aircraft itself, you're going to have pages upon pages of the news articles and everything yeah. else about, you know, those, those incidents. And they're going to have to work very hard. And I think you're right. It's going to be a very slow, slow progress. And if they are uh, in agreement with themselves as an organization that this could be years, you know, years, a campaign would take years, then I wish them good luck. As a consumer, as a consumer, you know, I believe that organization earn trust by mm -hmm. you know, in the way in which, you know, they operate and, of course, about you know, the, how well products and services function. And for me, right now today, I think that this aircraft has proven to not be suitable for, you know, essentially, um, you know, the consumer market. And they're going to have to work very hard for me as an individual to be convinced that, you know, it's not a risky proposition. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you, Pascal. Now, for us in the United Kingdom, and, and I, I think I'm right in saying for most people in Europe, there aren't that many airlines that have the 737 MAX. I think Chewy have a few, and Ryanair have got some on order. But at the moment, it's predominantly American airlines and Asian airlines that have the 737 MAX. So maybe we won't be put in a position yet where we have to personally make the decision <laughs> as to whether to get on board. So, Pascal, what's your piece of content for this week so this week something very different in fact um, which i nearly actually uh, missed but um been on linkedin quite a bit over the last few weeks and i was um, essentially shown i think by the linkedin algorithm a job advert for red bull mm -hmm. um, and i thought well i don't care and i was just about to delete obviously the uh, the article and the message which actually was sent via shannon vargas who is the talent acquisition and senior recruiter at um, red bull and i was about to pass because i don't know about you but of late linkedin's pushing lots of job advertising for me more than useful content mm -hmm. but then i thought hang on a minute red bull yeah the leaders in content marketing, maybe I should pay attention. So I'll be on mine, but what I thought would be interesting to discover what the position of brand marketing manager entails at Red Bull and yeah. whether we could learn some, some lessons. Now, as um, you can, people can see uh, watching the video, but also if you listen to the podcast, you can see that I printed the job advert. And surprisingly, perhaps, it's only one side of A4. You know, and I th I'm sure someone like Roger Edward would welcome the simplicity of keeping things, you know, uh, tight. But um, I mentioned a moment ago, Roger, that in Red Bull, as far as I'm concerned, are the example when it comes to content marketing and content repurposing. So what I thought I did as well is there was a job advert on LinkedIn, which I'm going to discuss in a moment. It was a link to the main website. And it's been some years since I've been on the Red Bull website. Uh, oh, my goodness, Roger, what a website this is for mm. what is essentially a drinks, drinks company. And to begin with, I didn't know, but um, there are eight uh, options for Red Bull. I only, I only was aware of a couple, but there are yeah. uh, eight options of the drinks. Now, the company is known widely because of their kind of... Um, you know, um, gives me wings adverts with that kind of very, very, um, you know, stylized cartoon animation that you get uh, on television. But they are also they also have their own online TV channel called Red Bull TV, where they are creating films and documentaries around essentially their sporting events as well as uh, cultural events. Talking about events, Roger, I mean they've claimed their space in online gaming and esports. Uh, anything from skate to ski to snowboarding is theirs. Music. They also do 
battery running, they have BMX, BMX bikes events and so on. They also do, of course, the um, aerial um, sports, including the infamous fluke tag, where people have to invent and, and build um, wings, really, made of cardboard and papier-mâché, and then jump off um, you know, um, a board to the swimming pool. They also, of course, um, do the soapbox um, race, where people build a cart made of uh, yes. essentially where they can find in a junkyard and try and race themselves. So they, they're part of, of that culture. They also have a magazine, you know, the Red Bull Bulletin, that you can buy, of course, you imagine, uh, garments and accessories. They also, I didn't know this, um, provide a holiday uh, experience called the Destination Red Bull, working with partners around the world. And um, the cartoons that you can see on television, you can go on the website, Roger, and actually you can download images and send them as e-cards to your, to your contacts. And they also, of course, sponsor um, countless athletes out there. So quite a good company. Now, to reassure Red Bull and our viewers and listeners, I have no interest in applying uh, to the <laughs> position, even though it is for the headquarters in Nashville, Tennessee. So for the right person, that would be a lovely place to work in. So let me go through the job description. I'm not going to go into it in a lot of details, um, but again, it's very, very short. But when you look at the opening paragraph, Roger, the role of the brand marketing manager is about winning new customers, driving consumption with current customers and reinforcing brand love, which is their version of brand loyalty. And even though they are Red Bull and they are, you could imagine, you know, this kind of ultimate kind of organization, I kind of like the simplicity, even for a brand marketing manager for Red Bull, it's that simple. You win your customers and you drive more consumption from current customers, which is at the heart of all form of business development. Would you agree? Absolutely, yeah. It's a simple, it's a simple description, and yep, yeah, you already said it. I like simple. <laughs> I think again, what it highlights is one of those things that I often say is that this is a, entirely a communications role by all accounts. Um, it's a brand marketing manager, uh, therefore, it, it, there's nothing. It doesn't sound like there's anything strategic there. So there's no product development. There's very little research i would imagine but it's very focused in its uh, its communications but i think that it would be a very interesting job purely for all those reasons you've said you know i love the the uh, content that red bull put together you know there's a there's an aircraft theme running through some of the things i'm saying today but i'm <laughs> sure that they they sponsored some really fast nippy sort of acrobat type air, air aircraft um, there's some sort of race where they fly through through um, great big um, rings and things like that over over a extended course, and of course the soapboxes are remarkably remarkably fun. So yeah, a very very interesting brand, and and yeah, isn't it good to see a job description? that is on one page as opposed to four or five pages. Which I've seen, no. I mean, even yeah. when you look at the eight key duties and responsibilities, I'm going to read out you know, some, but mm. I think they're very telling about both what we should take on board for our own organization, whether they're just one of you or you know, a team. But the, mm -hmm. the first duty, to be the eyes, ears, and voice of the consumer. And yep. as someone like you, Roger, who's been really championing the need to understand your customers really well, and using that to leverage your understanding of original insights, demographics, psychographics to influence marketing initiatives. So the marketing initiatives are influenced by your insight into the customer. Number mm -hmm. two, they want you to develop and refresh regional consumer profiles. 
-hmm. Number three, they want you to identify opportunities to enrich your understanding of consumer motivation. So these are the first three out of five key duties of the brand marketing manager, which again is a wonderful reminder of don't go rushing into, you know, forgive me, as my wife would say, faff on Facebook. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you need to, uh, th those insights, which I know sometimes doesn't feel like proper marketing, is going to give you what you need to really uh, approach and execute in the right way. I was having a conversation yesterday, funnily enough, with one of my old bosses, and I'm talking about a, a boss from like 20 odd years ago, and he was an absolute stickler for getting insights. And, and he, he's, he was always on my back to get research and get insights. Even if you were doing a like a brochure or, or a one-page sort of sales aid or something like that, he would like insight and research on that item to make sure that it was going to work. Now, so here you go, Roger. I hope you don't mind. It was a bit of an oddball, but um, a job description that helps us remind ourselves about you know, some of the key duties and focus. But ultimately, if your marketing is not informed by customer insight and it's not driving sales from new customers and increased sales from current customers, there's just something that has gone uh, awry somewhere. Excellent stuff. All right. Well, on the subject of content marketing, we cannot slow down today, as I mentioned a moment ago. Let's move on to marketing tech and apps. And this is probably one of my favorite segments of Two Geeks and Marketing podcast because every single week, Roger will surprise me with a tech and app that can make life easier as a content creator. So, Roger, what have we got for us this week? Okay. So, Pascal. We know these days that phones are remarkably good cameras and every generation of iPhone, every generation of Android phone that comes along, they always make a big deal as to the improvements they've made on the camera. So each iteration of the camera will have more megapixels, better lighting, a bigger sensor, more depth of field, you know, different lenses. And it's, it's pretty incredible what they can pack into a small unit like a phone when you consider that a proper big dslr camera would be four or five maybe ten times bigger than the actual phone itself but do you know the one thing that annoys me about the iphone <laughs> is that it won't take a photograph at 16 by 9 um aspect ratio uh, and i that's my favorite size of a photograph and I believe it's something to do with the sensor size within the iPhone. But it's always confounded me because you can record video on an iPhone at 16 by 9, but the photographs come out at 4 by 3. Now, there's an app which I found called ProCam, and you can definitely get it for the um, iPhone. I think you can get it for Android as well, but I'm, I, don't, I don't know, not being an Android person, whether you have the same problem with aspect ratio on, on, on an Android phone. But this app, actually, I originally bought it because it will allow you to take photographs at 16 by 9. But once I downloaded it and put it on my phone, I realized that this app contains so many features. It's almost like introducing all the flexibility you would have from a DSLR camera. So the ability to focus, change the aperture, change the exposure, all of those things which the, the phone does automatically, you can then have control over within the app. So if you are a bit of a camera geek, but you don't want to heft your giant Canon camera around all day, this might be a really good thing for you because it gives you those knobs and, and bells and whistles to tweak 
within the iPhone app. So try it out. It's called ProCam, and we'll put the link in the description as always. Second thing, and I've just realized actually that uh, uh, both of my ideas this week of me just sort of building upon and finding a slightly better alternative to what you can get on the phone. Now, again, I'm going to plug my book because I'm still really um, I'm happy about getting my book out there. And, and this week, somebody asked me a question, how did I actually write the book? And believe it or not, I probably didn't write it in the conventional sense. I talked it because I used the dictation facility on the iPhone to actually say the words into my phone. And the iPhone very conveniently just plugs all the words into whichever app you're using. So, for example, if you're in the notes feature, you just click the little microphone icon and talk and all the words appear in the notes app. And it's remarkably, remarkably accurate. And it understands my Northern English accent. And it even understands things like full stop, comma, open inverted commas. So you can literally dictate into the iPhone. And that's how I wrote the majority of my book. But of course, the iPhone isn't really designed to be a dictation um, facility. It's just a handy little gadget they've built in. So I did go looking around the internet to find dictation apps that I could use on the PC. Now, some of them you can buy, and they, they're actually you know quite expensive, 40 quid, 50 quid, that sort of thing. And I've come across one, which is called dictation.io. And it's actually a browser-based app. And it's very similar to what I've described on the phone. It's just got more features and a little bit more um, power. And literally, you just put it into your browser, Google Chrome, Firefox, whatever it is, pull your microphone out, press the, um, the uh, speak button and start talking. And as you speak, it just comes out all on the screen. And it, again, it understands punctuation. It understands line spacing and stuff like that. And it's such... You know, I always say, Pascal, that if you're writing stuff, whether it's a book, whether it's an article, try to write like you talk, because that's the most engaging way of communicating. And if you can use a dictation app like this, then your writing will be so much more engaging and simple. So give it a try. Dictation.io. Oh, thanks for that. And and I think you're right. You know, one has to discover the, the process of creation that works for them. And dictation was obviously right for you. Although before mm -hmm. I share my kind of, uh, you know, content app and, and, um, and marketing tech today, I just want on behalf of Android user, just laugh at you about the inability to do 69 photography, because of course, as an Android phone user, we've been doing it for quite some time. But ah. you know, there we are, <laughs> there we are. So uh, recently, uh, so for the last week, also, Roger, I've been delivering webinars a lot around um, content marketing and, and um, video marketing and so on. And very often during the Q&A section of the webinars, I'm asked about software I would recommend to edit video content. And I don't know about you, Roger, but I always get a little nervous by making those recommendations because mm. I always think that it's such a personal choice. So I, I always kind of give a range of options and say, but try them out and just use the one that you feel most comfortable because by and large, they all do the same. Yeah. But my recommendation is always don't be charmed by the offer of kind of advanced solutions used by professionals or, you know, kind of keen content creators like you and I, because you'll find that the interface and the dashboard is going to be very confusing or, in fact, it would invite you to try things that would be a waste of time that is not required. So 
in, in an attempt to be useful, I've done more research and I was reminded of two solutions, paid for solutions, but the monthly costs are very low for really simple video creation. And my recommendation to viewers and listeners, and of course, to people who come on the webinar is know first what kind of video you need and then reverse engineer the platform you need yeah. as opposed to the, the reverse. So if you need something very simple for short social media um, video style, you know, that 10, 20 second um, message, maybe a one minute video to introduce a new blog article. There's a platform called We Video, We as in us, W-E, and then video. And it's a lovely drag and drop. It's a lovely, very simple in interface. It reminds me a bit of, you know, the, the good old days of um, Movie Maker for Microsoft. Yeah. And the good old days before iMovie actually became too complicated, where what you see is what you get, and you can drag and drop, you can cut, you can slice and dice, and create something very simple, add some text, overlay the music, and so on. But importantly, you work fast, which is, I think is very, very important. So if that's what you need in that kind of... Um, a teaser content for a blog or just teaser content for social media, I think WeVideo is great for you. If the job is different, which is you were looking to more of a vlog like you would do, Roger, more mm -hmm. of a uh, Q&A, maybe more of a talking head tutorial of sort, then you, will, you want to be looking into something called Filmora. So film and then O-R-A, Filmora. They also have an, a, a mobile version of, of the platform. And Filmora is done by a company called Wondershare. Some of you will know them because they have other solutions. But Filmora is great for that. A bit more advanced. You, know, you need a bit more kind of uh, features. But again, you'll be working very fast because it's drag and drop for that kind of uh, true video marketing content. So between those two platforms, with video and Filmora, knowing exactly what you need, I think you might find something that will set you well on the way to becoming that award-winning film producer. Sounds good, Pascal. Now, as you said, you know, you and I, we're quite used to using the the really powerful packages like Premiere Pro or Final Cut Pro, but they, they are industrial strength ed editing platforms. You know, filmmakers use things like Adobe Premiere Pro. And and if, as you say, you just want to keep it simple, these things are absolutely as powerful as you need to get something really quite interesting out there. So, yeah, good to be reminded of the simple options. Well, thanks very much, Roger. Right, let's keep the pace going and let's move on to This Week in History. In 1882, the Bijou Theatre opens in Boston and becomes the first theatre in the US to be lighted by electricity, installed and supervised by Thomas Edison himself. In 1955, Rosa Parks is jailed for refusing to give up her seat on the public bus to a white man. This was followed by the successful Montgomery bus boycott organised by a young Baptist minister named Martin Luther King Jr. In 1967, the Concorde prototype number one is rolled out in Toulouse, France, but it would be two more years of testing before the world's first supersonic airliner made its maiden flight. In 1971, Michael Hart launches Project Gutenberg to digitize and make freely available public domain books and text. His first posting was the Declaration of Independence. Wow. In 1972, Atari introduces Pong, the world's first commercially successful video game. This table tennis arcade game would spark the beginning of the video game industry we know today. And in 1991, Apple releases version 1.0 of QuickTime, allowing anyone with a personal computer to play and watch color videos, and in doing so, changed the history of computing. 
In 1996, America Online launches unlimited dial-up internet access for $19.95 a month, and, and within weeks, daily usage doubled among subscribers to a whole 32 minutes a day. Well, in 2003, Roger, The Return of the King, third and final film in the Lord of the Rings series premieres in Wellington. And in 2014, Battle of the Five Armies, third and final film of the Hobbit series premieres in London. Wow, I, I, I wouldn't have said that Return of the King was that old. My goodness. And that reminds me that that was the thing back then, you know. That was the end of your movie. That was the mm. Christmas treat to go and mm. see Return of the King and later on The Hobbit. And back to what you were saying about in the news by Wonder Woman, you know, we're going to have to get excited about maybe watching something online. Yeah, and but that's good though, isn't it? Because we've been saying on Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast for a while that it's about time these film companies got their act together and said, you know, during the pandemic, we're going to have to bite the bullet and maybe do a simultaneous cinema and platform launch. So hats off, actually, for them doing that with Wonder Woman. Do you know, I can't get my head around the fact that we couldn't watch video uh, in, in colour before 1991, before QuickTime. I, I was just thinking, well, what, what did we do before? Was it like monochrome or something? Or I don't know, but yeah. It, uh, this is on, this is on computers only, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, yeah. kind of, you know, how we forget that um, this is especially not to be able to do what we're doing right now today. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think back. Um, my, my first computer was a Commodore. It was either a Commodore sixty four or an Amiga or something like that. But I can't ever remember watching videos on those computers. So, yeah, I, I, it's it, what I love about these this week in history, is that even though you think you know something, quite often by looking into the past, you learn something new. No, absolutely. And and I thought it was uh, important to add, because we do so, you and I, add historical events such as, obviously, Rosa Parks and and what she stood for, literally, and, and how things have moved on. But um, again, it's back to this idea of, you know, we are where we are, you know, in mm -hmm. terms of a society, we are where we are in terms of science and computing, because of things that happens um, that happened decades ago. And yeah. I think this segment is always special to me. Yeah. And, you know, interestingly enough, the Rosa Parks thing, last week on the show, you asked me about Doctor Who, and we talked mm. about the very first episode of Doctor Who. Funnily enough, one of the most recent episodes of Doctor Who in the modern era, with Jodie Whittaker playing the, the Doctor, they actually did an episode where they went back in time and they were actually on the bus with Rosa Parks, actually making sure that that happened. Because it, in, a, in a bit of a Back to the Future type plot twist, somebody was trying to change history by making sure that she did give up her seat and by giving up her seat, that would have changed history forever. So the Doctor had to go back in time to make sure that history happened the way it was meant to i think it's also um, you know interesting that somehow and we don't i mean we planned a lot as people heard in episode 20 but we still leave things to chance and you always end up reading stuff about aircraft and concord this time we do two gigs and marketing podcast and um, so what is interesting is um for viewers and listeners i was born in toulouse in the south of france ah. and this city to this day is still immensely proud to have been a contributor to obviously the the design and build of concord it's one of the biggest regrets of my life, Pascal, that I never got to travel even once in the Concorde. Um, do you know, in 19, 
uh, in 2003, the last year that it was in service, there was an offer that British Airways were giving um, to, to take part in one of the last flights during, I think, the last couple of months. And at the time, it seemed like a massive amount of money. I think it was about £1,000 each. And the deal was you flew from London to New York in Concord, a couple of nights in a hotel, and then you flew back conventionally on a 747 or 777 or something like that. And at the time, I just thought, you know what? It's a lot of money, best not. But now, in hindsight, the fact that it was never flew again after that and, and never will fly again, do you know, maybe it would have been money well spent just to have tried yeah. it. So am I right in thinking, because you know more about those things than I do, that there are no supersonic aircraft in the world at this moment in time? Apart from jet fighters, definitely not. Um, I mean, you keep reading about people who are trying to develop new aircraft, but I, I guess the I guess it'll be interesting to see what COVID, the effect of COVID is, because I think the problem with supersonic jets has always been the fact they can't actually carry that many pa passengers. You know, Concorde was 100 people tops, I think, as opposed to like 500 people in a, in a 747. So they were never commercially viable unless they were able to charge incredibly high prices, which is how Concorde managed to work. And I think that's the problem even now with developing these supersonic jets is that they're not going to be able to carry that many passengers. But who knows, in the world that we're moving into post-COVID, maybe smaller aircraft and faster aircraft might be the way forward. Yeah, and I know that you know there's been investment in some form of space travel. It's not quite space as we know it, and not in the, in the likes of Star Trek and Star Wars. But you know, moving into the higher level, um, you know, altitude is like into the atmosphere. Yeah. And I wonder whether this is where people are, are concentrating their efforts as opposed to supersonic um, aircraft. But uh, and and the Concorde essentially was discontinued because technology was too, the aircraft was too old, or is it because there was low demand for its service? I think obviously there was the very sad crash in Paris, mm. uh, but the, I mean they fixed it. They lined the the fuel tanks with Kevlar. Uh, I, I just think the, the it it was just it just became too old to maintain. I think that the to keep supplying the parts to keep it flying just became too expensive in the end for the actual commercial returns they were getting from it. And I think it was Airbus took the decision to say to British Airways and Air France, you know, we, we just can't support this aircraft any longer. You know, I still think it's an absolute tragedy because seeing that plane, as I say, I never flew in it, but I've seen it fly quite a few times, seen it take off. It's visited Edinburgh for a few times. We, My wife and I once went on holiday to Barbados and the hotel we were staying in was right on the final approach to the airport. And every day, about three o'clock, without fail, the Concorde came into the to land, and and it's an it was an incredible aircraft to see in the air, mm. and we're never going to see anything like that again. I remember I saw it. I think it was in Paris. The roar of that oh, aircraft was unique. Oh, yes. There was nothing like it, wasn't it? Absolutely, the sound of it was just power, power. It made the earth shake. I don't know. A lot of people don't like that, you know, with the. <laughs> The pollution and all of that but you know wow wow well talking of um you know supersonic speed and, yeah we and are pace. going fast we are going <laughs> fast here let's move on to our next segment the creator's shout outs 
So, Roger, there are people out there creating immense value and content for their community. Who have you chosen today for the content creator's shout-outs? Pascal, this week I want to give a big shout-out to a friend of mine, Kien Tan. Now, I've known Kien for quite a few years. He's a consultant and he works for PricewaterhouseCoopers. That's one of those massive global consultancy um, companies. And he specializes in retail. And he's just put together quite a bit of content over the years about retail marketing and that sort of thing. But, and here's the thing, Kien is also a fitness instructor in his spare time, just like me. So we, we also share our love of fitness classes as well as our love of marketing. And and again, there's a, a, this, this is a total coincidence because there's been a big sort of aircraft theme running under this show today. <laughs> but uh, Kien is a massive air, aircraft geek as well as me. And back in this is this is well over ten years ago now, maybe twelve years ago, he was on one of the first flights of the Airbus A three eighty, the double decker plane, and that flight was with Singapore Airlines. Now, my son Andrew at the time was uh, quite small, and he was really into planes as well. And I met Kien very quick, very soon after he'd been on that flight at one of the uh, fitness conventions that we used to go to, and he brought my son a load of Airbus A380 Singapore Airlines memorabilia that he collected off that flight, and, and my son was absolutely over the moon by that gift, and we've never really forgotten that. We still have it now, uh, but that's not the point of uh, the shout-out today. The shout-out today is that Kien's put together some interesting little videos on LinkedIn, just thinking about where we are with COVID and the effect that it's going to have on the lockdown and Christmas sales, and actually on what we were talking about earlier, Black Friday. And this video that I've linked to in the show notes, it's only short, it's about a minute, maybe 90 seconds, but there's some really interesting insights there and the promise of more insights to come. So if you're really interested in retail sales uh, and what's going to happen globally over the next few months as a result of COVID and the lockdown, well worth checking out Kien Tan. Now, and you know, we can learn so much from um, B2C, if you like that term, you know, and I think that there's some lessons that can apply directly into the, the B2B environment as well. And who have you got in your spotlight this week? So this week, Roger, I've got Gudrun Loritz in the ah. spotlight, to use your terms. Now, Gudrun is a content strategist and content producer for many brands out there, but she also has a special program for heritage attractions and visitor attractions. And she's also essentially practicing you know, what she preaches in terms of she's also the producer of the Time Pieces History podcast. This is uh, also a very interesting formula. This is micro-podcasting. What you'll mm -hmm. find, Roger, is that the episodes are roughly between five to ten minutes, and they just explore a historical um, landmark, an historical object, or indeed a um, celebrity from you know the past in a way in which you know she she does it so well. It's very conversational. It's very kind of pleasant to listen to, but also because it's short, you can either binge on all the different episodes or just listen one one a day. But it's also demonstrating to her client the heritage attractions, what is possible with a very, very simple setup. So. 
If you want to listen to it, she will talk to you about the Fun Islands, for example. Roger, she'll talk about Dorman Cathedral. She could also talk to you about Oliver Cromwell. She, the very first one she did for the Time Pieces History podcast was the Bio Tapestry. So ah. as a true Francophile and also just to be, to, to be different, she started with, you know, that one. But she's also talking about the boogeyman, the boogeyman which <laughs> I thought was interesting. So there's a lot in there. I mean, it's becoming quite a rich podcast, but I think there's a lesson in there in terms of maybe sometime short is better and best for you you know, uh, as a content marketing strategy. But also, I love the fact that, you know, she has a service for a heritage attraction and she's bringing that modern form of content marketing to the fore, which is also leading by example. So Gudrun Lorette is my shout out today. Fantastic. Yeah, I've, I've heard quite a few of these episodes, Pascal, and it's a lovely format. And, you know, we get, we really enjoy doing our history section on this show. I really like hearing about history from other people as well. Now smashing. So thanks again also, Roger, for bringing your shout out for today. The time has come, the time as has we've come. been saying you know, all along, to speed up to film marketing. Yes. Pop quiz, hot shot. There's a bomb on a bus. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour or more, the bomb is armed. If it drops below 50, it blows up. What do you do? What do you do? Well, what we're going to do, Roger, is talk about Speed, the 1994 surprise hit in Hollywood and around the world, directed by Yann de Bont and starring Keanu Reeves, Sandra Bullock, and many, many stars such as Dennis Hopper, Jeff Daniels, and Joe Morton, which is one of my favourites, kind of supporting actor. Yeah, and, and of course, we've been making references to speed all the way through this podcast, supersonic, 50 miles an hour, and all that sort of thing. And again, it's... It's genuinely one of those films where, again, you're on the edge of your seat pretty much all the way through the film. I think once it gets started, and it gets started pretty quickly, you know, within the first five minutes, you're right into the action. It never really stops for one minute to let you catch your breath. So it lives up to its name immediately with that whole speed idea. And you know what? what is interesting is that it's a film that, feels, looks and sounds like the 90s and it is mm -hmm. to be watched therefore with that nostalgia in mind. Um, you and I sometimes ask ourselves the question how would it work with a younger audience because of course they've been used to something more current and, and modern but um, I have to say you know as part of uh, this podcast I was re reminiscing about you know speed. I went to sit at the movies and I was blown away you know by, by the storyline and the action and I had the VHS cassette with me for, for years and watched it at least once or twice a year. It was kind of the guilty pleasure, but also it's just a good film. And the acting is excellent. The, the tension and, you know, it's very believable as well. And I think that um, the, the, the filmmakers did a very good job. Yeah, absolutely right. And I mean, it's simple premise. You know, there's a bomb on this bus. <laughs> and if the bus goes lower than 50 miles an hour, it's going to explode. And, and that's a simple concept to get your head around. But then on top of that, you've got to layer on the fact that it takes place in Los Angeles and all the traffic congestion that you have in Los Angeles. So the possibility of keeping a bus going above 50 miles an hour with all that traffic, that's what made it scary because, oh my God, you know, there's a, there's a traffic jam up ahead. We've got to dive off the freeway. And then they dive off the freeway and they find that you know, there's a lorry in the way and they've got to scream round a corner. And it's just those 
you know, it's a simple idea, but they keep putting these hurdles in front of these poor people. And, and as I say, it almost becomes quite, quite scary and quite tiring to watch it because it's like one thing after another. And people say that, of course, when you watch it with a 2020 kind of, uh, you know, audience mindset, it can cause, it can be quite lame as a storyline and action. But even when you look at the body count, I mean, this is a violent film, mm. you know, uh, in terms of action. So the bad guy, um, Dennis Hopper, who plays the role of Howard Payne, you very kindly read his uh, kind of line, you know, and I think for years afterwards, people kept going on pop quiz hot shot around the office and, uh, yes. and you know, with their mates around the pub. But I think the um, the villain is, is menacing, you know, he's, he's kind of obviously lost the plot completely. Um, but also, it was just in you know, that relationship between, you know, Keanu Reeves and, and Sandra Bullock, who plays obviously um, Annie. And he plays, you know, which I think is a wonderful 90s hero's name, Jack Traven. I mean, if you call yes. Jack Traven, you will do well in a film like Speed. Absolutely. It's like Baz Ingram, isn't it? It's just it's, it's a fabulous name. And, you know, the pop quiz hotshot thing, I, I don't think this film is flawless. And and actually, um, you know, I'm, a, I'm always a big fan of, of setting things up in films and making things that happen early on in the film relevant to things that happen mm -hmm. later. But I did think, you know, it, it very at the very part of the first start of the, of the film, um, the the baddie Dennis Hopper actually puts a bomb in an elevator. That's the first introductory scene, and you've you've got um, you've got Keanu Reeves and Jeff Daniels arriving in this tower block to to try and get the people out of the the elevator. And all of a sudden, Jeff Daniels just suddenly goes into this pop quiz hot shot. You're you're in an airport and you've got a hostage. What do you do? What do you do? And Jack Traven says, "Oh, I would shoot the hostage." And I thought, oh, that's a very interesting conversation that they're having. Where did that come from? <laughs> and literally, you know, 10 minutes later, as Dennis Hopper's trying to get out the building, he manages to take Jeff Daniels hostage and he's backing away. And Keanu Reeves is there and Jeff Daniels just goes, shoot the hostage, shoot the hostage. And of course, that's how they get out of it. And I just thought mm, that setup just felt to me to be a little bit clunky. You know, maybe set it up and then the payoff is an hour and a half later at the end of the movie. But mm. a setup and then a payoff within about five minutes did feel a little bit like bad scripting to me. But hey, the rest of the film's fantastic. And you know, I remember when I went on the screenwriting course, um, I was told by the the tutor, "Be horrible to your characters." And my yeah. God, that <laughs> film has really gone through the same school or, or lesson because you're right. You know, once um, the character Jack Traven is on board of the bus, uh, interestingly, the bus uh, number twenty twenty five, which you add the numbers together, makes fifty. Um, there's just relentless obstacles and and kind of you know false attempts and and whatever and I think some people may not have seen the, the film so we're not going to let uh, the, the ending you know we're not going to reveal the ending in this podcast but I think what what is interesting is that uh, and that's something we'll come on to in a moment is that when you watch it for the first time you just don't know how they're going to get out of this one you kind of have a sense of course they're going to win it's going to get a girl at the end they're going to kiss but in terms of how they're going to do it even when they have an attempt that, and they have a solution that seems plausible, there's something that happens. There's like debris on the road that makes, you know, the bus uh, veer, of course. There's um, 
obviously um, red herrings and false information sent by Dennis Hopper's character, which means that you know the uh, the SWAT teams is going to wild goose chase and so on. And in the in the space of two hours, they packed so much. I mean, I think you're right. Apart from when they celebrate, obviously the fight that um, you know Jeff Daniels uh, escaped alive, albeit being shot in the leg, and they are at the bar celebrating, and the character played by Joe Morton warns Keanu Reeves that you know this was luck. Be more careful next time. Everything else is just full on action and explosions. Absolutely, and and just to because this again coincidentally, this podcast episode has had a lot of references to aircraft and things like that. But <laughs> don't forget that the very final part of the bus seg- segment of the film actually takes place at Los Angeles International Airport, LAX. Mm. You know, they f- they solve the problem of of uh, traffic congestion by actually taking the bus and driving around the runways at LAX uh, and it, so yeah you know they, they use the location phenomenally well uh with this film and and you're absolutely right relentless from start to finish so what what marketing lessons are we learning from speed Oh, do you know, uh, I've been thinking about this a lot. Uh, to begin with, this was 1994. Remember, yeah. only three years after people could get quick time to watch color videos <laughs> we mentioned a moment ago. So I think the marketing was very traditional in terms of the, the, what they did. The um, 20th Century Fox, who were the producers and distributors, wanted to keep it safe and do the diehard type um, marketing, which I think uh, you know wasn't very wise. I mean, many years had, moved, uh, had passed from diehard, but they just didn't know what to make of it. So in terms of marketing, lessons for all of us and content creators one thing that speed does very well and obviously you know we must credit you know Jan de Bond and his uh, cinematographer is the use of color you know mm-hmm. the movie mm-hmm. speed has a strong color identity which is a use of blue and red and if you're interested all of you go back and watch speed a you're gonna have a, a blast but also look for the blues and the reds which is why oddly the poster is out of step Mm. because mm. the poster has reds and, and oranges to sell the explosion. But actually, the identity and the, and the, the branding of the movie are, are blue and red throughout. And I think that that's um, a, a good lesson for all of us to begin with, Roger. Yeah, and do you know, Pascal, I, I'm going to have to go back and watch this film again. Now, I, I have to admit that because we get so excited about the films that we talk about on this show, I pretty much always go and watch the film again uh, after we've recorded this episode, unless it's a film which I haven't seen for a while and I have to watch it before. But ma- mainly I'll just watch it again because we get so excited. But I've never noticed that colour thing before about this film. So I'll be definitely looking out for it next time. And I guess the second lesson is is, is just getting the best team possible to work on it. You know, Joss, we- Joss Whedon wrote the dialogue, uh, the original screenplay by Graham Yost. He also wrote Broken Arrow, Band oh, of I love Brothers. That film. Yeah. Uh, Broken Arrow is a good one. And John Wright, who's the editor, you know, 13th Warrior, Apocalypto, and Mark Mancina. Sorry, I, sp- I, I, I pronounced that badly, but Con Air, Bad Boys, Training Day, all, you know, heavily action film orientated. So. Yeah, and in fact, if you, if you watch Speed again, you know, now, having watched, you know, the one you mentioned, like Bad Boys in particular and Con Air, um, you, you hear, it's a bit like John Williams and Hans Zimmer and all the others, you know, there's a signature. And when you watch Speed, you hear the undertone of Bad Boys in, in the mm. film, which is kind of, but you're right, it's about the team. So uh, as a content creator, you know, know your place, know your strength. Now, interestingly, Jan de Bond really started his career as a cinematographer. 
indeed mm. he worked with uh, John McTinnon on Die Hard that was yes. reviewed by you and I recently he also worked on Black Rain he, he worked on The Hunt for Red October but when he took on the role of director he didn't also do the cinematography he got Andrei Bartoviak to do that for him yeah. Andrew, uh, and I think that's also an important when you become the project manager so to speak or the content director don't try and double up on or, or step back into you know your comfort zone let others do what you would normally do because you have different duties on this occasion yeah and what was remarkable again we've said is this, the actual basis of the story was really quite simple wasn't it that it's a bus and if it goes below 50 miles an hour it'll blow up and yet despite the simplicity of the premise they constantly through all these obstacles at the cast and in a way it was almost like a even though it's a movie it could almost have been one of those very old 1930s um, cliffhanger serials couldn't it because literally like every five to ten minutes you get a cliffhanger or another obstacle or another problem to solve and then once you think oh thank goodness we've solved that then there's another cliffhanger now imagine chunking it up into into a into a series of 15 minute episodes you could just see it working like that well i think i never thought of that but you're right and i can't really imagine you know what um when they sat down you know as they always do to do the first reading with the directors and producers and you're the actors and you turn on the page and you don't know what's coming next and you must have thought this is incredible mm-hmm. and and we know that um Keanu was so excited particularly once he saw the second revision when josh Whedon, as you mentioned got involved the dialogues were m- much improved mm-hmm. but he thought i'm going to do as much of the action as possible you know and and i think that also pays off because we see a lot of him doing the action and uh, he got himself in real shape for that and that was maybe uh, why he led to him doing john wick and all the others because he, he just got hooked on on doing the action scenes as well yeah now we don't normally do this pascal in this section um (laughs) but let's just talk very briefly about the sequel to speed which uh, came out a few years later um it didn't have keanu reeves in it i think sandra bullock was the only person who who managed to come across but it was speed Mm 2 and yet they managed to set it on a boat now, however fast a boat can be, you just cannot convey the same aggression and the same genuine speed as you can with a land-based vehicle. And I always remember, I, I actually think that's one of the few films that I've bailed on and not watched the ending because it was just like the antithesis of speed. What would that be, sloth? It was just, it was just utterly dreadful and they should never have even bothered to try and make it. No, uh, uh, it was so disappointing. I think all of us, you know, be, uh, because we're inspired, encouraged by, you know, how exciting the first one was, we went there. But uh, I think by then we've learned, you know, now, nowadays, you know, 30 years later, uh, we've learned that uh, when the lead characters are not in the main story, it's not worth going. It's just the studios trying to, you know, essentially um, jump on the bandwagon. Uh, they, it was very, very poor. Um, because to that point, you know, Speed is a, is a one that people talk about all the time. I mean, last mm. year, of course, was the 25th anniversary of Speed and the media mm. around the world, you know, um, obviously the, the Blu-ray box that was released and so on and so forth. I don't think Speed 2 will have the, the same treatment. I thought uh, I would um, close the, this discussion on speed, which could last much longer, as is always the case with film marketing, with uh, a comment made by the Hollywood Reporter. 
um, when the movie was released. Um, so the um, journalist at the time had seen the movie, and it's something that I think is very, very telling. So he said, there should be traffic jams at the box office as Fox picks up many busloads of riders for its fast and furiously entertaining thriller speed. Fast and furiously entertaining thriller speed. Could we suggest that Speed in 1994 planted the seed for the Fast and Furious franchise, or are we stretching it a bit? You never know. You never know. I actually think there might be some truth in what you're saying there. Somebody watched Speed, and a whole new franchise was born out of that experience. So... This is the end of episode 21 of Two Geeks and Marketing Podcast. Thank you so much for your support. Please leave comments, feedback, and suggestions in the usual places. Until the next one, make sure that your marketing is done right. I was Pascal Fintoni and he was Roger Edwards. This was Two Geeks and the Marketing Podcast. We've got to go. Mm-hmm.